One of, if not the greatest preachers in American history was George Whitfield. In October 1740, Whitfield was preaching throughout the New England colonies. And there's a young man who desperately wanted to hear him preach. And he got news one afternoon or one morning that Whitfield was due to preach at Middletown. That morning at 10 o'clock, a young man was tending his field. So he just dropped everything, ran back home, and grabbed his wife, grabbed his horse, and off they went as if they were running for their lives. They had 12 miles to ride in about an hour, and they drove the horse to exhaustion. The young man got down, he started running alongside the horse just to give the horse a break until he ran out of breath, and on and off they went. As they approached the road leading to Middletown, they, they saw this huge cloud of dust in the distance and this sound of, of rumbling thunder. As they got closer, they realized it was just all the horses from all the people who were streaming in to hear Whitfield preach, and then the dust cloud they kicked up. Every man had left his field. No one was working that day, and everyone looked the same, covered in, in thick brown dust, but no one was complaining. They finally came to a meeting house where 4,000 people were gathered, and the river ferry boats were continually running people across. The crowd continued to stream in, and eventually came time for Whitfield to preach, and this young man later testified of his preaching, saying, quote, it solemnized my mind and put me in a trembling fear. Before he began, he preached, before he began to preach, he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God. A sweet solemnity sat upon his brow. Hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. End quote. And for the next 30 years, Whitfield would continue to preach the gospel throughout England and the colonies. Testifying of this gospel, which indeed spells the end of our own righteousness, but then meets us with the good news of God's righteousness, which is available to us in Christ's death. And through his itinerant preaching ministry, Whitfield would often preach to crowds of five, ten, even 20,000 people. He said to have preached 18,000 times to altogether about 10 million people. There's no doubt that God used him greatly to bring about a great awakening in America. Uh, examples like this, they surprise us, they amaze us, especially since we just can't even imagine anything like this happening again today. Most people cannot be bothered to get out of bed and drive 20 minutes to church in their luxury vehicle with air conditioning. And furthermore, America is post-modern and post-truth. It's grown tired of basic Christianity and people just have zero appetite for the preaching of the Bible. The thing is, though, there are many preachers and ministers who, they still want to draw a crowd of like 20,000 people. But the simple preaching of the gospel is not going to draw that crowd anymore. So they, they've compromised. They've changed the message and they, they've changed the methods. And the style and the substance of the ministry has been altered to fit the appetites, desires, and felt needs of the world. I mean, how else can the church really compete? Like today, people have well, like a thousand TV channels to choose from, not to mention everything the internet affords. And so why would you give up like 90 minutes of your week to go to church, hear a sermon? You can just stay at home and watch Netflix. But is this okay? Is it okay for preachers and ministers to compromise and make changes in order to draw a crowd? The answer is simple. It just comes down to who defines church. People can do whatever they want to do, and, and many do. You can slap the label church on any type of gathering. 
But who says what we should be doing here? And who sets the standard for how we operate as the church? The answer is the Lord Jesus. It's his church. It belongs to him. The people are his sheep. And the ministers and pastors, they're merely his servants. They're merely his stewards overlooking the church until he returns. And they should therefore just do whatever their master says. You know, in areas where scripture is silent, there's freedom. Like, should we sit in pews or chairs? Who cares? But there are certain aspects of the church that are non-negotiable to the Lord. And topping that list is the message of the gospel. And the good news message of Christ's death and resurrection, which answers the bad news of our sin and condemnation, that can, cannot be compromised. And also included is the method of communicating that message Namely, teaching, preaching, and admonishing. That God has placed his power to transform lives in his word. And therefore, he wants his ministers to preach that word clearly, accurately, faithfully. And of course, this work has a goal. It's not simply to fill pews or build a building. It is to present every member of the church complete in Christ. The ministers to preach the word of God to the people of God so that they might be fully conformed to the image of God, which is Christ Jesus. And this, this can't change. This, this must not change if you're going to have a faithful church that is pleasing to the Lord. But sadly, this has changed since the days of Whitfield. It's changed quite a bit. The unadulterated preaching of the word was abandoned a long time ago by many churches, because it doesn't, doesn't achieve the goals of church growth. And of course, that is man's definition of success, not the Lord's. He just wants his people and his ministers to be faithful. Faithful to his mission, faithful to his message, and faithful to his methods. <clears throat> and the true health of a church will be directly correlated to how, how much its ministers are sold out to that ministry, that mission, that method. That message. You know, if Whitfield were alive today, he might only draw a crowd of hundreds. Nevertheless, the church desperately needs faithful ministers who are going to carry on this work of preaching the gospel until the Lord returns. We need ministers like Whitfield. We need ministers like the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> and speaking of this, and this morning as we get back to Colossians 1, we're going to continue to look at this picture of what the true minister of the gospel, like Paul, should look like. So you can take your Bibles now and open them back up to Colossians chapter 1. And we're in this final section, verses 24 through 29. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Colossian church. He's, he's getting personal. Before he launches into the heart of this letter, he shares his heart with them. And in a sense, he's writing to them out of the blue, he doesn't know them personally, but he cares about them. He's intensely concerned for them because they're a church. He's a minister of the church. If they're in danger, he cares. And they are in danger. False teaching was on the rise in Colossae, and Paul wants to write to, to build them up and to ward that off. But first, you know, here at the end of chapter 1, he writes to, to just show them that he bleeds ministry. Like he cuts himself open to, to show he bleeds ministry. 
He bleeds the gospel. He bleeds Christ. He bleeds the church. That's why he's writing. He's speaking of his ministry on their behalf. And as we just observe that, and from the outside, watch as Paul speaks of his ministry on their behalf, we ourselves get this inspired portrait of a minister. And Paul, by God's grace, was a true minister. He was a model minister. And he shows us by example, both the the type of faith we need and also the type of ministers we need. And so we want to continue going through this passage that we might behold this example and be encouraged from it. So specifically, we started into this last week from verses 24 through 29. We're aiming to derive these seven marks of a true minister of Christ Jesus that you might be encouraged. Seven marks of a true minister of Christ Jesus that you might be encouraged. And like I mentioned, we've already covered the first three. This is the minister's status, the minister's suffering, and the minister's stewardship. That was all last time. We saw the true minister is identified by his status, which is that of a servant. He's one who serves Christ. He serves the church. That might involve suffering, but nonetheless, he's to carry on with his ministry. He's also a steward of the household of God. It's not his church. He's not building his kingdom for his name. It is Christ's church. He's just overseeing it until the master returns. So he must be found trustworthy and faithful. This is critical work. And we've already learned so much from Paul's encouraging example of what what the minister should look like. But now we want to carry on with this portrait, this picture of a true minister that we might continue to be instructed and encouraged. So we're going to carry on now with this technically mark number four. The fourth mark of a true minister. This is the minister's subject. The minister's subject. And if you're in Colossians 1, look at verse 25. We'll read as we go again. We'll just pick up from where we left off. In verse 25. He says in verse 25, Of this church, I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that, I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And we learned when we covered the first half of verse 25 last week, that Paul was made a minister. And you recall the word minister in Greek just means servant. Originally used to refer to a table waiter. And that's a good picture for the minister. He's to serve, to wait on the people of God. We also learned how Paul functioned as a steward of the church, which is the household of God. And And that term carries the idea of a a manager or an overseer, one who's looking over the people of God until the master returns. And so you have both of these images, and they help paint the portrait of of the minister and, and his job. He's a servant. He's a steward. Great illustrations. But at the same time, these are just analogies, right? Because in reality, God does not expect ministers to, to literally wait tables or to physically manage a property. That, that's not actually the job description of a minister or a pastor. It's just analogy. So, so what then is the real job or, or job description of the minister? What's his primary task? In what way is he to serve and steward the church? And Paul reflects the answer in his own personal testimony. 
verse 25, he says he, he was made a minister. He was made a steward. Why? Verse 25, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And that's the real subject of the true minister and his ministry. He's to occupy himself with the preaching of the word of God. Specifically, Paul talks about fully carrying out the preaching of the word of God. In the Greek, it literally says to make full the word of God. To make full the word of God. That's not talking about adding to the word of God. Even though God would use Paul under inspiration to add to the scriptures. No, this is talking about making the word fully known. The subject of a minister's ministry is the word of God. And he's to make that word fully known in depth and in breadth. This means he's to communicate the whole counsel of the whole word of God to all people everywhere, or at least to all who cross his path. Any true minister must get this straight. This is his, his job, his duty received from the Lord himself. And the apostle Paul was faithful in this ministry. It, preaching the word, especially back then, it came with a cost. A lot of people didn't like what he had to say, and they were happy to shoot the messenger. And so preaching the word came with affliction, suffering, hardship. But, oh well, nonetheless, Paul just carried on. And he said this of his ministry amidst much suffering, Acts twenty twenty four. He said, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That's what I was talking about when I mentioned a minister who's just sold out to the Lord's mission. And Paul is so sold out to preaching the gospel of the grace of God that he counted his own life as nothing. Even if preaching cost him suffering, affliction, maybe some lost friendships, lost opportunity, whatever. It didn't matter. All that mattered was finishing his course. He had a ministry given to him by the Lord. He had to fulfill that ministry. You just have to keep going. This is the subject of all ministers preaching the word. It comes from the Lord himself. You hear pastors and ministers often say that they're, they're called into ministry. You've heard that, been called into ministry. And, and rightly so. I mean, we do believe that the Lord still calls men into a special service, into the work of the ministry. But if your call is genuine, shouldn't it align with the subject of that calling? If you've really been called by the Lord, well, then like, shouldn't that line up with how he calls men to serve? Right? And how does he call men to serve? By preaching. And by preaching the gospel. This is why the Lord calls men to minister. So if you have someone who claims to be called into the ministry, but they're not ministering and preaching the gospel, it means either they're not truly called or, or they're unfaithful to their calling. Because that's the calling. Listen to 1 Corinthians nine sixteen and 17. It's pretty serious. Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this 
If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And do you see how he's viewing the ministry? It's like a service. He's been pressed into it. And Paul did not choose the ministry. It chose him. The Lord chose him. Now, like, your hands are tied. You've been called in the ministry. Now, you've got a stewardship entrusted to you. Just, it doesn't matter if you feel good that morning. It's, it's time to go. It's time to fulfill the ministry. He has to carry on with preaching the gospel. It's a stewardship. And if he doesn't fulfill that ministry in preaching the word, woe unto him. And so it goes for all ministers. Imagine you're a restaurant owner and your passion is food. You love serving people high quality food and you're very involved. You're, you're essentially the restaurant manager. You're there all the time, but you're going to go on a vac- vacation for a couple of weeks. And so you kind of hand over operations to like the head chef and he's going to run the show while you're gone. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It's business as usual. Just, you know, keep serving high quality food, oversee the, the wait staff, help the other chefs like, you know, no problem. You just put it in his hands while you're gone. So you go on vacation, you come back, and the place has been transformed. It no longer even looks like a restaurant. The kitchen has been gutted. The, the, the tables are all gone. The chairs are lined up in rows. There's a stage. It looks like a small concert venue. So you ask the head chef, like, well, what is going on? What happened while I was gone? And he explains, like, well, you know, we kind of had an idea. We, we thought it'd be better that inst- if instead of instead of serving food, what if we just like provided entertainment? And that way we'd get more people, we'd make more money. And the staff all had hidden talents, right? A few of the waiters could could sing. Some of the waitresses could do like stand-up comedy, like the hostess could juggle. So they decided to put on like a variety hour. They sold the kitchen equipment. They built a stage. They bought a PA. And their first night, they attracted a good-sized crowd. I think it actually take off. Now, as the owner, though, and you come back to this, how would you react? I mean, if your goal is simply to just, just make money and maybe attract a crowd, you might be kind of interested. But that's not your passion. Your passion is food. You, you got into this to feed people, to give the people high-quality food, to provide the community like a top-tier restaurant. You have that reputation. You've worked hard for that reputation. This has been your lifelong dream and passion. And it's just not up to the staff to change things, to make those decisions. Like it, that, that would be your call, if anything. You're the owner. You set the mission. They, their job is just to do that, to fulfill your mission. And so needless to say, at the very least, you'd, you'd probably fire every last one of them. Now, I know it's, it's kind of a silly illustration, but hopefully you can see how, similarly, it's the job of ministers to feed the people. They're commissioned by God to be like spiritual chefs, and preparing and serving a feast of God's word. This is continual work because the people always need to eat. This is extensive work because the Bible is a big book. And the minister is not to simply serve up his favorite dishes, but is to give the people the, the full menu, right? The whole counsel of the word of God. This is what the owner wants. This is, this is what the owner has said to do with this time. But all too many ministers have given up on that. They've decided to forsake this mission for something else, thinking, you know, by their own inventiveness, they can be more successful. They could get more people, make more money if they 
did things a little bit differently. And that's why a lot of churches feel like concert halls or variety hours. It's just, it's so much more successful. It's, it's going to get a lot more people in the door. But again, it's just not up to the minister, the servant, to change things. You're just the steward. This is not your restaurant. It's not your church. You don't get to make those decisions. It's simply up to you to fulfill the owner's wishes. And that primarily involves, for the church, the preaching of the Word of God. And if you change that, if you water that down, if you forsake that, you might succeed on earth, but you can expect nothing but rebuke and even judgment from the owner, from the master. It's like Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And that same woe fell upon Israel's shepherds in the Old Testament, for they had forsaken that ministry of feeding the flock. Listen to Ezekiel 34, 2 and 3, the famous Old Testament judgment on Israel's shepherds. Ezekiel 34, 2, it says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. I don't want that woe. You don't want that woe. But sadly, there will be a day of reckoning, and I fear that all too many ministers will find nothing but that woe. And this is bad news for the flock too, right? The flock doesn't benefit from this. The flock gets starved when the minister forsakes his mission. You may not be a teacher or preacher, but don't you think all this means that you'd better put yourselves under faithful preaching of the word? I mean, do you want to be starved? Some of you have been starved before. You know what it's like. You've been there. You've felt that. Yeah, you were, you were entertained and content at that church, some church for many years. But unbeknownst to you, you were spiritually starving and your weakness eventually showed itself in a time of trial, a time of testing, and you had no spiritual strength to fall back on. Like the Lord knows what he's doing and his will is good. And he just knows it's best for you to feed often on the pure milk of his word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, 1 Peter 2, 2. And that's just how you grow. And therefore, the Lord has assigned ministers, servants, stewards to his church to feed them until he comes back. And so, you know, back to Colossians, verse 25. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And that's it. It's, it's really quite simple, right? It's a simp- simply a matter of, of doing it and being faithful. The mission is simple, but it's serious at the same time. And what would you think of a mother who didn't feed her children? That would be criminal. And so it is in the eyes of God for pastors who do not preach the word and feed the flock. Now keep your finger in Colossians. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. 
I know I'm, I'm taking this point here and running with it, but it's a good point to run with, so bear with me. In 2 Timothy 4, at the end of 2 Timothy 3, and Paul talks about Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. And therefore, all of it is useful for teaching, for training, for equipping the people of God. The Scripture, it's God's food. It's good food. It's what he wants his people to get. Therefore, a minister like Timothy should do what with this inspired Scripture? We get to 2 Timothy 4, and you get verse 2, where he says right after this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy is to pick up the ministry baton from Paul, and he needs to do that primarily by preaching the word. That's the ministry he's going to carry on. You've got to cut it straight, give it straight. And this is the verse we quote often to speak of this, the dire necessity of preaching the word to God's people. But do you really recognize how important this charge is in verse 2? We hear verse 2 all the time, but, but don't skip over verse 1. Verse 1 is the charge, where he charges it up. In verse 2, it's like Paul is is shooting a direct arrow of admonition at Timothy. But in verse 1, it's like he's pulling back that bowstring as far as it will go. And so look at verse 1. He first says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing... And by his kingdom, preach the word. Do you see how that, you see how you shouldn't skip over verse one and just get to preach the word? This is very serious. That's one of, if not the most serious charges in all of scripture. Like just for this one command, Paul invokes the presence of God. That's enough. But he also invokes the presence of Christ Jesus. He's going to judge everyone. That includes ministers. This Jesus is also going to return and appear and bring his kingdom. So in light of all that, he says, hey, Timothy, if if you do just one thing, preach the word. If you're going to just do one thing, preach the word. This is the minister's main subject, preaching of the word of God. And why does Paul supercharge this command? Not every command in scripture gets a, a supercharge like this. So why? Because the stakes are high. Now look at verse 3 as we carry on. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. That time came in Timothy's day, and that, that time is surely coming again. We live in a day and age where ear tickling is it's all people want. We have a fully formed on-demand culture. You just give me what I want, when I want it, nothing else. You give, me, give me the music I want. Give me the shows I want. Forget even the days of like broadcast radio and TV where whatever's on is on. Take it or leave it. No, now you, with streaming, you get, you get only what you want 
catered specifically to your personal preferences and tastes. And, and I believe this, this part of our culture has truly impacted and soured how people process preaching. It's only exacerbated man's nature to please self and avoid the truth. I mean, just, just tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good. Make me feel happy. I don't want sound doctrine that convicts. You know, that, that cuts me open. It lays bare my sin and shame. Like, I, I don't want that. It's uncomfortable. Just, just give me something. Give me something pleasing. Give me something else. I mean, especially with the internet now, people can literally accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them only what they want to hear and nothing else. And that's actually quite dangerous. And finally, such people realize that the truth of Scripture, it cuts us open and it hurts us so that we might be healed. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word, and especially God's word preach, cuts us open. It lays us bare. It exposes our sin. It convicts us. But you, you see, it does so that it might apply the cure of the gospel to our sin. How the grace of God has come in Christ Jesus to forgive us, to redeem us. Because there's nothing we could do about that, that cancer on the inside. Only by Christ's finished work on the cross can we be forgiven and truly healed, reconciled, restored to God that we might walk in newness, right? There's a deeper joy available, but only comes in sound doctrine, not in spite of sound doctrine. But all too many people will simply just take delight from a sermon called, you know, five tips to overcome your anxiety, even though it has nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the gospel. They'll just walk away happy. I think we've established the point. The preaching of the word is a big deal to God. It's been said many times that God had one son and he made him a preacher. So I'm going to take that to mean preaching is a big deal to the Lord because his word is a big deal and he wants it, he wants it out there. And the minister must keep this as his main subject. He will be held accountable as a steward. Did he fulfill the preaching of the word? Now back to Colossians 1. I should mention that before moving on in verses 26 and 27, and Paul spins off again and he goes down a little rabbit trail on the subject of the word of God itself. But the minister's subject is the word of God. But the word of God's subject is Christ. Look what he says in verse 26. He's talking about his ministry of the word. And he says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's kind of to boil it down, he's saying that the minister's main subject is the word of God. The word of God's main subject is Christ. And therefore, the minister is to preach Christ, which is what he says in verse 28. But Paul expresses that thought here with this term, mystery. It's the word mystery. 
became a technical term in the New Testament. And it doesn't refer to something unknowable or mystical. But it refers to some truth that was previously unrevealed in the Old Testament, but now has been made known. And Paul himself just clearly defines what he means by mystery. You see how he says this mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So there you have it. Mystery is something that he didn't reveal in the Old Testament, but now it's been revealed. That, that's a mystery. The secret things belong to the Lord, and there are some aspects of his plan that he's never going to reveal. We will not find out on this side of eternity. But at the same time, God has chosen to progressively reveal himself and his plan for redeeming this fallen world from Adam to Noah to Abraham. And God was was moving the football forward and then the revelation of that plan. By Moses, it's like it's gotten to the 50-yard line. He's given quite a bit about who he is and what he's done. You got David and the prophets, and the, the ball progresses even further. But now that Christ has come, you know, like the football is in the end zone. It's all out there. The full revelation of God's plan of salvation has now been made known in the mystery of Christ, which is, is fully revealed. These New Testament mysteries, when this term is used, most often focuses on the person of Christ. But here, Paul reveals. Not just the person of Christ or the coming of Christ, but something else, something special. Look again at verse 27. He says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery he's talking about here, which is now revealed, is it's not just Christ, it's Christ in you. In you, the hope of glory. It's not just Christ with you, not Christ for you, but, but here it's Christ in you. And this mystery is revealing the truth of our union with Christ. And that by faith, the believer is united to Christ, like, like a husband and wife in marriage. And by virtue of that union, all the, the benefits of salvation flow to us. Right? Just if, as if you were to marry a billionaire and you immediately linked accounts, well, now that, that account is your account. And that status is now your status just by virtue of that union. And so it goes in Christ, that in Christ, we gain access to, to his account of full righteousness, perfect righteousness. Now, that's ours now because we're in him. He's in us. We're united. But on top of that, in, in an admittedly mysterious sense, Scripture says how the Lord comes to dwell in and among his people. This is what all is the Lord's promise. Back in John 14, 23, he mentioned how, although he was going to depart, that both he and the Father would come and make their abode with the disciples. And we know that's fulfilled through the indwelling Holy Spirit who brings the triune God to our presence. But likewise, Ephesians three seventeen says that Christ comes to dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ himself comes to dwell in your hearts through faith. Like the Old Testament made clear, the Messiah is coming. But it never said anything about the fact that he would be in his redeemed people. 
who, by the way, would be made up mostly of Gentiles. These were, these were mind-blowing truths, but, but they're encouraging truths. Because Christ in us equals the hope of glory. The presence of the indwelling Christ assures us of future glory. Romans 8.10 says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Those who experience new birth in Christ have that hope of glory. That though the outer man is, is decaying, we have new life and eternal life. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We will be glorified with him. And we're assured of this because Christ is in us. We are in him. So if we bring this back to our, our text in Colossians and boil it down, Again, what Paul is saying is the minister's main subject is is the word of God. The word of God's main subject is Christ. These go hand in hand. So if a minister is to be one who preaches the word of God, well, he must obviously therefore be one who preaches the incarnate word of God, Christ. He's the one whom all scripture is about. He must be one who preaches Christ. Like verse 28 says, we proclaim him. That's what we do then. We, we preach Christ. Except no substitutes. No other meal will suffice. God has revealed the mysteries of Christ, the Savior, so that his people might be saved and reconciled. This is, this is like manna sent from heaven for, God's, for, the, for the people of God's edification, for their spiritual good. Like These are the riches of heaven that they've been given. These riches of glory he speaks of, it's like they're right there. They're lying on the ground like the manna. And it's the minister's job then to go and gather it up and package it and deliver it to God's people to feed them. Now, if you've been paying attention, you've probably put together by now that we're not getting further than point number four this morning. You know, verses 24 through 29, we're looking at these seven marks of a true minister and my original plan was to finish up the final four marks this morning. But and as I got into it, just given the epidemic of weak and compromised and empty preaching, I just felt compelled to camp out on this fourth point and just pile it on. Why not? And there's no minister, minister or ministry without this, without the preaching of the word. Hearing this, though, you might think to yourself, okay, you know, that's all fine, but, but I'm not a minister. I'm I'm not a preacher, so what does this like really have to do with me? And that may be true that you're not called to formal ministry in a sense, but everything we've learned this morning about the priority of the word preached greatly matters to you and applies to you. And for one, you need to know that the Lord himself has an extremely high view of preaching. And so therefore, you should share that extremely high view of preaching. This is by his design, and, and accordingly, although you may not be the preacher, it's still on you to seek out and sit under faithful preaching. And this may be the chief application for you, to seek out ministers who display these marks and sit under faithful preaching. You need to feed yourself each and every day through your own Bible reading, Bible study, and prayer. You need to be feeding yourself. But we've learned this morning how 
God has put a high priority on this prepared meal, the, the sermon. And this is why he still calls some and equips them to, to teach and to preach. You know, why do people go to fine dining restaurants? Because we like nice food, but we don't have the time or opportunity to go to culinary school and then practice for 10 years so that we can get, make that you know, perfect roasted chicken or whatever. You know, we can try our best, but it's, it's never quite the same. There's just no beating an expert chef. And likewise, the minister who's been trained, he may be used by God to give the people just a special spiritual meal that's just aimed directly at their hearts. And so I hope you see today your own need by God's design for this special meal and that you come to value it and then prioritize it. We have so many options with our time that life is full of choices. I'm sure you've already learned that success in life is basically down to the choices you make. And that that goes for your spiritual growth in large measure. It's going to be tied into the choices you make. And, you know, sitting at the feet of Jesus is always the right choice. That was Mary's choice at the end of Luke 10. May recall how Jesus and his gang show up at Mary and Martha's house. And so it's up to Mary and Martha now to prepare lunch for them all. They rush into action. But then Mary sees that, hey, Jesus, he's sitting down now to teach. She realizes he's serving up a better meal. So she sits down just to listen to him teach. Martha's very upset because now it's up to her to prepare all by herself. That, that doesn't fly. But, but Jesus tells Martha, like only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. And do you choose the good part? Do you prioritize sitting under the teaching of Christ? Or... Are you just worried and bothered about so many other things that don't really matter in comparison? Just take, for example, you know, the simple choice of what you listen to on your drive home, during your workout, just for the fun of it. You can listen to music. There's nothing wrong with that. But how about from time to time just making a choice to listen to a sermon for some added spiritual food? Like one of the benefits of our modern lives is that you don't have to ride 12 miles on horseback to hear one good sermon. You don't have to mess with cassette tapes anymore. Like we, we've come a, a good ways. You just go online, you find endless sermons available for free from many faithful men of God. So what's stopping you from making up a little choice throughout the week to get a little more spiritual food? And also think about your commitment to Sunday mornings, our Sunday morning assembly of of the local church. Are you present here regularly? Is this your habit? And then are you engaged? I used to tell my college students back in the day that Sunday mornings begin on Saturday night, meaning you want to get a good night's sleep because you highly value, you prioritize this time, you share the Lord's high view of the church, high view of the preaching of the word. So you want to be awake. You don't want to fight nodding off 30 times because you stayed up too late. You want to be engaged. And doesn't that reflect you value this time? Because the Lord values this time. Also, you know, try taking sermon notes. I don't care if you throw them out immediately. If for no other reason than just it keeps your mind engaged. Like you can tell a guy is a serious eater at a restaurant when he, ta- he tucks his napkin into his shirt. 
doesn't care what he looks like. Like he's there to eat. He's just, he's ready. He's serious. And so you too, you be a serious eater of the word of God. Just you come prepared, you're active, you're engaged. You do your part to be faithful, to listen. And then build up your appetite. You know, my glory days of, of high school football, I've always been tall and skinny, but I was a good wide receiver, right? You know, at my peak though, I could eat two Subway footlongs like back to back. Just one, two, two footlongs. It was awesome. But that was because I was, I was growing, I was working hard, and I was building up an appetite. You could do the same spiritually where you're just making choices and commitments that are stretching you, building your appetite for God's word, and God's word preached, and growing you. You know, take Sunday nights as another example. And did you know we serve a second meal at this church? And so what stops you from coming to get equipped? TV, entertainment, sports, rest. I would exhort you to prioritize your spiritual health over some of these things that just come and, and get fed. And I totally understand how a lot of people are tired and the work week is about to begin. They just want to rest. It's easy to do nothing, but the easier thing to do is often not the right thing to do in life. If you find yourself not where you want to be, needing to spiritually grow, like I'm saying, just, just make a few changes in your life. Be a man or woman of resolve. Sacrifice a bit of your time and, and get the spiritual input that God has designed for the growth of his people. As a quick side note, you know, husbands and fathers, I hope you realize it's up to you to lead your family in this regard. That you are the primary ministers and servants and stewards of your families, not me. And that means you set the tone and culture in your home. And so does your family learn from you a high view of the preaching of the word of God or, or a low view of the preaching of the word? Do they see from you Christianity? It's like a, it's a Sunday morning event. Or do they see from you like this is, a, this is a life. This is a daily life. You lead them by making choices. And so do so by making choices that are going to promote the spiritual growth of your whole family. Well, look, it's like we didn't get very far in Colossians 1 this morning, but I don't really apologize because we need reminders from God's word about God's word often. And that both in America and in the church in America, we, ha we have a serious culture problem where we just want comfort and pleasure and joy and ease. And that's not actually wrong. It's just that people have forsaken the only true source of these things. It's like Isaiah question in Isaiah 55 too. He said, why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? No, but instead he says in verse one, everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat. And the word of God is all you need to satisfy your soul and it's, it's free of cost. And so let us be those who passionately seek out Christ and his word, especially his word preached. And you will find a deeper comfort and pleasure and joy in life as you're made full in Christ. Let that be our resolve. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we, we praise you this morning and, and do indeed resolve to, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear his word. 
Only one thing is necessary. So often we are like a Martha, worried and bothered about so many things in life. And some of those things matter. We, we are called to, to be responsible with, with how we live. Yet, Lord, we understand the principle here. You care about our spiritual growth. We need to renew our minds with your word daily, all the time. And so we need to prioritize our time and, and give you our first fruits. Not, not those five minutes before we fall asleep, but the best of our time that we might know you, worship you, learn from you. And let's pray you convict us this morning as we see from the Lord Jesus, we see from the Apostle Paul, a, a high view of the ministry, the job of the minister, the preaching of the word, that we would receive that and apply that where we then value that ministry. We seek it out. We prioritize it because we see your design. This is how you guard your people, how you build them up, how you ward off false teaching, how you equip them with sound doctrine. Your plan is good. You, you know what you're doing, Lord, and I pray we just get on board with it and make choices to, to turn away from so many of the distractions of our lives and culture, but to just come back, settle down, and, and get under the feet of Christ that we may learn from him. Convict us and then encourage us. Your word is always encouraging, giving us hope in Christ who died and rose for us. He is all that we need. He is our treasure. I pray we would go to him more often for all that we need. It's in his name we pray. Amen.